The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from John 14, 12 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask, excuse me, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to see all of you, and thank you, Lauren, for bringing us into the scripture as we should uh, with beauty and vulnerability. Well, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, I'm the pastor here, and um, it's good to see you. Um, gosh, welcome. Some of you I got to see in between. Uh, I just a quick announcement that I, I said earlier. We had a um, a meeting uh, in between services, like a little teaching on the sacraments, and I taught uh, this morning in between the services on baptism. And next week, uh, Matt Walker, our pastoral intern, and uh, one of our deacons here will be teaching on the Lord's Supper, and so that'll be great time uh, in between the services next week. So at about 9.45 next week, so if you're able to come a little early for that, uh, it'll be great. It'll be worth it. So, um, But, you know, uh, <clears throat> I don't know about you, I'm... Um, Grew up in sports world, so if you have did that at all, and no matter what sport it was, and had some sort of a coach, uh, you may have had a coach that had said some things you're like some weird phrases. And uh, I know for uh, especially Erin McCabe, who's standing up here, one of her favorites, our favorite uh, in the pro world right now is Mike McDaniel. Have you heard of this guy? He's the he's the uh, head coach of the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> Uh, dude is hilarious. He just, uh, one of those guys, you know, you expect some people when they come up to a microphone like a coach to just say like, yeah, we needed more offense or more points or whatever. They always ask him the dumbest questions. But this guy, he, <laughs> he just kind of says what's ever in his brain. Like he doesn't really care what they ask him. He just kind of just answers whatever he's thinking. So it's kind of funny. And uh, he's such a different kind of person, went to Yale, uh, didn't play football, just grew up around it and um, really kind of gets that. And I love those phrases. And I have a, I have a number of those from... Uh, my growing up too, that I, he just kind of reminds him that, uh, I, I, you know, we had a coach one time talk about getting into the playoffs and making it far. And one time he said something like, uh, you know, we're like a turtle on a fence post. Wouldn't have got here unless somebody put us here. I was like, I, that, what do you talk, turtle, fence post? Like, just tell us what to do. We just want to win the game. Uh, I also had a coach, and this is one of the ones he, uh, my, my head coach for years, he said this, he probably said it at least two or three times a year. We lived uh, where our stadium was and the school was. People would like get out of school and they would drive by and, and, and like we'd be practicing out on the field. And so like the parking lots were right there. So everybody was passing by and they'd honk and wave. And he would finish the practice and he'd look at us and he'd go, 
you can be a honker and a waver, or you can be on this football team. And we're like, all right, okay, we're here. We're like, we're not, uh, what, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know. But I, that one really sunk into me. And, uh, and I remember that one, especially this coach was a great coach, a legendary guy. And, um, you know, what he was really getting at, right, was you can either be one of these people that is around it, honks, waves, and, and, hey, we see you out there working hard. I'm going home. Good luck with all that. You know, like that kind of person. You can kind of like glory in the marks of the uniform, or you can actually put on the uniform and play. And, uh, you know, it, we started a series uh, in the Upper Room Discourse with Jesus. You're like, how are you going to connect that? Um, and it's interesting because Jesus, these are Jesus' final moments with his disciples. These are his moments where, uh, and I think Lauren's heart drew it out beautifully, is that this is Jesus in, in John's gospel that slows down. He is really giving, you feel it in the room. You smell what it's like there. You, you, you experience the, the moments where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, may touch on this moment. John slows down far enough to where you get to hear almost every word. And this is the last night Jesus has with his disciples. And what he is wanting them to understand is, what does it look like to really follow me? What does it really mean? I mean, he says in the middle of what we just read here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, just like any relationship, if you love someone, a friendship, a spouse, a relationship, anything like that, it, it, it warrants a visible reaction from you. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying you have to do my commandments to be saved. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, if you love me, it will be seen because you will follow what I say. You will care enough to, to hear me and follow that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a great German theologian in the 20, 21st, 20th century, he said this about discipleship. And even in prison, he wrote often about what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he wrote a book on the cost of discipleship. He said, Discipleship is a visible, as visible as light is in the night, as visible as a mountain in the flatlands. To follow Jesus means it is that seen. And so when we're looking at this Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 to 17, these focused chapters, Jesus is not just kind of throwing out, hey, this is what Christianity is. He's saying, if you really want to know what following me means, it has to be visible. Your love for me has to be something that is seen as a light in the night, as a mountain in the flatlands. That is visible following relationship. And that's what this is talking about. That's, that's what this discourse is. And here's what's amazing, that this, this discourse doesn't just talk about these people in that room. It actually, in, in one part, and we'll see it, the pronouns change from them to even us. So it wasn't just for the first century hearers in that upper room. It's now for his 21st century hearers. Us. What does it really mean to visibly show that? To not just drive around it, not just dance around it, not just flirt with it, but actually say, 
I love you, Jesus. And because of that, I'm gonna, my life is gonna reflect a visible sign of that love to you. And so we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this in a couple ways. We're gonna look at first the power of what it means to, to be a disciple. What is it, what's the power that we have as disciples? And then secondly, we're gonna look at the person behind that power. What's the, who's the person behind that? So the, the power and then the person. <clears throat> and throughout his ministry, Jesus um, and his disciples have actually encountered Jesus, his power. They've encountered it on a grand level, whether he's fed a number of people, thousands of people, whether he's healed people, uh, whether he's even shown himself in what was called the transfiguration, where he, he showed his real self emanating of his glory. Jesus has shown power. And so they haven't not only experienced his power and his work, but they've actually been a part of it. So when it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. When they heard works, they were like, yeah, we've been a part of that. They've not only been a part of it, they've been actually handed the power to go do them. Uh, There's a, a passage where 72 followers go out and begin doing the work of Jesus. And they say, we saw Satan fall like lightning. And Jesus is like, that's beautiful. But don't glory in that. Glory in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. And even later, even up to this point in that room, and even they've been asking questions like, hey, they recognize his power. They recognize that the work he's doing is a lot bigger than just like, hey, this guy has some strength. They're like, we're following the right guy. And they ask him questions like, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into power? And he kind of keeps trying to encourage him. I don't think you understand what you're asking. That the works are consistently pointing to this. And I think that they think often, like maybe we do, that discipleship, when that, even that word can evoke in us, an idea that we're supposed to be this like powerful person, <laughs> that there's something about us that's supposed to warrant this work, that we have to show it and, and be proud of it and be this, this person's at the, at the forefront. But I remember reading a book by a guy named Jay Kim. He's a pastor in California. And um, <clears throat> he uh, was writing about the difference. He, he writes a lot on technology and, and discipleship in a technological age and how easy it is, and you could kind of see where this is going a little bit, but his book is, is really well written, about how, uh, how often because of the way that we're used to technology and writing and, and reading and, and research and all the ways that we do, we're used to things happening like that. So we want our discipleship when we read that or hear that word to be the same. We want our following Jesus to kind of just pop up. We want it to be instantaneous. We want... We want our lives to look different. We want the interchange to happen. But what, what J. Kim writes about is that discipleship and, and to them is written over and over as a, an agrarian society. This work being done is one of talking about mustard seeds. It's talking about tending a garden. It's slow, long, long progressive growth. And so it's not something instantaneous. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging me, and other times it's incredibly frustrating to me. 
Because when they read the works, yeah, we're doing works. And then Jesus tends and he says in verse 12, and greater works than these, they may have in their mind, man, are we going to surpass? Like, are the things that Jesus is doing, we're going to surpass that? Like, our stuff is going to be marquee bigger. Like, he fed 5,000, we're going to feed 10. He healed this many people, we're going to heal like 10 times that. Now, actually, what the work being talked about here is, is different than that. It's not surpassing word. It's actually the, the Greek word service. It means extending out. In other words, it's interesting in Jesus when he says to the disciples, because this moment they've been wrestling with him leaving. In the last passage we looked at, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled because they are just downcast. All they've heard is that he's going to leave them. And they're thinking, how does this happen? But he says to them, it is actually better that I go. Now, I don't know about you. If I was a disciple in that room and I had physically, tangibly had Jesus with me, and then he said, it's better that I go, I would think he's crazy. Like, in your walk, if you're here and you would say, and I'm not presuming everyone here would say they are a follower of Jesus, but even if you aren't, wouldn't that be remarkable to actually have Jesus here today in our midst? Like, to be able to touch him or talk with him. Like, aren't there things about the, your faith or questions you have or, or realities in your life that if he was sitting in our midst, you'd just be like, oh man, he's here with us. Like, we, we have him here. There's something about that that would just solve that. But he's saying, it's better that I go. Why? Because Jesus was limited in his flesh. And when he said that, he said, it's better that I go because the way that this good news spreads out is because it's not through just me being here. It will be through you to everyone else. The greater works aren't just doing something bigger, bigger, badder splash. It's that they extend it out, that the good news of Jesus is being taken out because Jesus himself is even limited in the flesh. And so he's giving to them the dissemination of this good news. And that, see, it's not about the force. It's not about the how. It's the content. It's the what. See, as a disciple, what it means for us to have power and strength in the work isn't the how. It's how we do this. It's what we have. Um, of you ever, uh, you know, you may be a movie buff and, and like those kind of things. Um, but, you know, before a movie's done, all the writers will sit around, the writer, uh, the actors, sorry, will sit around with the scripts that the writers have given them. And they won't do the, the acting. They'll just sit in a round and, and they'll actually read to one another through the script and they'll walk through it. Uh, and I remember hearing of a story um, <clears throat> of uh, the movie Devil Wears Prada where uh, Meryl Streep, actually, there's a moment in the movie where she like is screaming, yelling. Like there's this loud, just in your face kind of bold moment. But that at the reading, that when they sat in the round and they did their reading through the scripts, instead of doing that, she whispered it. She took the entire section and just whispered her lines. And everybody in, in, in the round had to lean in. 
It was a strange, it was a, such a, a powerful moment because instead of being the blunt force of being hit with like how it would be read, it was read differently. So instead of the how, the content of what she was speaking went into, and everybody listened, and it was such a profound moment, even for those new actors in that room. That's, that's what Jesus is getting at. What he's saying is don't, don't get hung up on the fact that the power of what it means to be a disciple, the work, is that it's all on you. There's some strength. It's the content. It's what you're doing. It's what you have in this good news that transforms. Because he says even next, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Notice Jesus, he doesn't mention this word, but he says ask. And what is he talking about? He's talking about prayer. He's talking about the power of prayer. And to ask means, what does it mean for us to talk? He almost uses the word ask in, this, uh, in these two verses as if there's just an ongoing conversation. As if there's just this dialogue with him. And remember, why does he say this? There's a curving in. It's kind of strange. He says, ask in my name. And he's he's had these conversations with the disciples before. A a, a common prayer that we all hear, maybe maybe some of us have memorized, is from the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And, And that had happened previously with not only the disciples, but a number of people listening to Jesus. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that actually was born out of them saying, hey, how do we pray? so Jesus gives them this outline of prayer. And you read this and you may go, okay, Jesus, is he giving them a formula? <laughs> like, especially if we're churched people in here, if there are people in here that have been in church for a while, or you pray often, or, or you pray over a meal, or you're used to that, and you go like, I gotta say Jesus' name. You know, we always say, why do we end with in Jesus' name? Well, you can see it may have come from this, but why is that? Why why is it so important? It's not a magic formula. It's not something he's wanting to get across. But he's driving this back to himself. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus is putting himself in the position of Lord. It's almost like where he first began, he said, okay, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. He's now saying, if you ask me, he's putting himself in that position. That it doesn't, it's not the focus, and this is what we can get hung up on. It's not the focus on what you can get from him. It's him encouraging them to say, look, you've heard me talk about how I'm leaving you, but I'm never going to leave you. This should encourage us, especially when we think about what was it like for the disciples who actually had Jesus in the flesh with them, and we have actually never seen him, right? We've actually never seen Jesus. We read about him. We know that he walked on the surface. We know he was in the flesh. But how did they have this connection? What encouraged them as followers is that Jesus said, ask me. You can talk to me. I'm not leaving you. Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor. If you're unfamiliar with him, he was a pastor from New York that passed away uh, pretty recently. And uh, he wrote a beautiful book on prayer. And some of the elements of that are, are just so uh, connected to this 
of like what prayer is and what prayer isn't. Especially when Jesus says first, he says something like, ask in my name. What is he first throwing up? The, the, the two things of awe and intimacy. That when Jesus says, ask in my name, it should evoke awe. There's this objective relationship. That approaching Jesus is not an equal relationship. He's not saying, hey, just, um, he's not like a, a, just a, a sort of a dumping session to come to Jesus and say there's some sort of equality here of this, but that he is held up. That Jesus is saying, I am in the position where you can actually send your prayers to me. That would have been mind-blowing to them. As mind-blowing as when he, he took this table and, and they were so used to the Passover being about the normal elements. And then he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is my body. And he inserted himself into it. That's what he's doing. And for them to hear this is incredible. I, I worked with a, a, a guy named Ed Clowney in, uh, in, uh, years ago. He's a great theologian and uh, wrote a number of things. But he said this. He said this. I remember him saying this in a room with me and some other staff about prayer. He said, the Bible doesn't present the art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. That prayer isn't about us learning some sort of formula or an art or that we're just so good at it. It's about the relationship there. It's to stir an awe that God, that Jesus is in this position, yet intimacy, because what does he say twice? Ask me. Ask me. Look, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ is not about how great you can do things or how great your prayers look. It's about how connected you are to Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not keep my commandments, then I'll know you love me. If you love me from that love, will come that life and that living. Ask me. Ask. Eugene Peterson says, prayers in the Bible were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They were not the record of people searching for the meaning of life. They were prayed by people who, were under, who understood that God, not their feelings, were at the center Prayer isn't about you becoming just better at prayer. It's about you asking and connecting to Jesus. Because behind all this power is the person. I don't know if you read through this and even into the next verses. It says in verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another help, helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. All through these little sandwich verses, over and over, it's almost like we're being brought in with his disciples into a room with more than one person. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is forming what we know in Christian circles called the Trinity. And that may be a really big word, but you know, actually what Jesus is doing here theologically is teaching us what the Trinity is relationally. He's saying to you and I that behind what we are as disciples is the person and work of 
God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you are not alone in this. And what it means in the understanding to have relationship, that the Trinity, what it is, is perfect separateness, perfect togetherness, three in one, one in three. There is so much mystery about it, and there's no way I can actually speak about all of that or plumb the depths of it, right? But what he does say is it does exist, and it is true, and that we are brought into this relationship with them. And he says, that if, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who is this? There's another helper. So there's a lot of ink spilled on this other helper. This is the Holy Spirit, but, but he distinguishes him as another helper, as a person different than Jesus that will come alongside It's really unique to John's gospel. In fact, we will be looking at the Holy Spirit five different times in the course of our study, in the course of this um, series over these next weeks, because the Holy Spirit plays such a predominant role. And so I'm not going to just, you know, lay out a ton of stuff about the Holy Spirit and his character. I'm just going to go strictly with what uh, is in this passage, and we'll farm in more of his character and, and uniqueness. But Jesus, what he wants us to see is this other helper. Hey, I will go, but it's better that I go that someone else, this one will be with you. And not just be with you, but be with you forever. And different than any other place, we see how do we have power? How do we live this out? See, this is the uniqueness of Christianity than any other religion, philosophy, or idea. Is that it would be easy to say, okay, live out discipleship. You can do it. The works you have are going to be in him. Pray. Do all these things. You got all this. You got it. (laughs) That's where we typically go, especially in January when we're like re-upping on everything. Church, Christianity, God, we wanted food. What is it? You know, put it in the category. What does it mean to actually follow him? How do we do it? What makes it effective is that we have another helper who actually dwells within us who's the spirit of truth, that Jesus, yes, he's our intercessor. He's the one that stands, he speaks on our behalf, but the Holy Spirit is the one that guides us. He guides our hearts. Notice what he's even called, even the spirit of truth, because there is so much sound, so many distractions, so many voices that we hear telling us, this is what it means to be a disciple. All you gotta do is this. This is what the world outside, and this is why it's this, this Holy Spirit is distinguished from the world, is because what voice do you hear that tells you what it really means that you're an A, in relationship with Jesus, and B, growing in him? How do you know you're actually growing? What does that look like? I read an article some time ago in The Atlantic about somebody who was um, going to listen to Wynton Marsalis. This is an article written on uh, some great music, you know, the great musician Wynton Marsalis. And, uh, as the person went to write the article, it was interesting, uh, they went to the show expecting one thing and they got something completely different out of it. And I, I want to read just a little bit of the excerpt to you for what they received. So as I expected, as he played a ballad, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, unaccompanied, written by Victor Young, a film score composer for 
for a 1930s romance. The piece can bring out the sadness in any scene, and Marcellus appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking in words and notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marcellus played the final phrase, the title statement and declarative tones allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until, at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off. Blaring a rapid sing-song melody and electronic beeps. People started giggling, picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled, Marcellus paused for a beat, motionless, and his eyebrows arched. I scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted out into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marcellus started replaying the silly cell phone melody note for note. Then he repeated it and began improvising variations on tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he left off, with you. The ovation was tremendous. And a friend came in shortly after leaning over. She said to me, hey, 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 what did I miss? See what Marcellus did. It was beautiful. He took the distraction, the, the mess, the, 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 the moment that seems like it needs to be magic, and he shaped it exactly where it was supposed to go. Took what it was and continued it forward, making the room understand it's not just about it's okay. I think we think discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus is so in our hands that it has to be magic or nothing at all. But it's not, it's in his hands. And he takes our distracted, messy, what we think and, and, and all the, the voices, the chatter, the shame that we think we try need to get over in order to be a disciple. Well, I just need to finish this. Or I need to do this in order to feel this. I need to keep this at bay. I need to confess this better. I need to lay it down. The person behind your discipleship is Jesus. Who he's asking for is the other helper. He's not asking for you to have a better life. Jesus asks, says, ask of what? Me. And I will ask of the Father. And the Father, and I will give you another helper. Do you hear anything in there about you just need to do better? How do you live out the commandments that Jesus gives you? It's only by him holding you in relationship. It's only by him bringing you in. And there is no better picture than this table. Again, I can't say it enough. This table is exactly what those disciples were, were doing in this evening. They were at this table. And by coming to this table, I, I want to remind you of something. There is a tremendous power 
that you're acknowledging, recognizing, and even receiving by coming to this table. Because this is not just a tradition. This is not something that, that I set up or, or, or our host team or, or Christ Pres Music Row set up. This is Jesus' table. He's actually saying, if you come to this table and you take and ingest and, and take in you the wine and the, and the bread, you're actually saying, I am a follower of you publicly. You're visibly on the flatlands of all of this life saying, I follow you. So all the more, if you're here and you're wrestling, you're saying, gosh, this is interesting, but I don't know if I, I actually am a disciple. Come to faith in him. I want to just boldly say to you, come to Jesus. Because there's no other one you can follow that will handle you like we just read. No other voice, no other one of this world or around it than the other helper that can speak the truth. What does truth do? It keeps you from being misguided. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He speaks the truth of who you are and the truth of who the Lord Jesus is and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit so that you can come to this table and take it. And guess what makes it effective? You ever thought about this? What actually, you're coming to take elements, what actually does the change? It's not your thinking on it so hard. It's not your feeling so close. Because I'm telling you what, there are plenty of times as your pastor, I come to this table and I don't feel it. You know who does the work in me? The other helper. The one who can get into my insides and change me to make common elements effective to feed my insides so that I'm changed more and more like Jesus. That's how we trust. Praise be to God, for that's what it means to be a disciple. Let's love him. Let's stand together.